Friends, welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. I am Kristen Carey, and I'm really grateful to be here with Dan Drake and Janice Caudle today. Janice and Dan are an amazing duo. They have written many books together on therapeutic disclosure. They're going to explain more of what that is and why it's so important for you guys to know about it. Both of them are therapists. Dan, you're in California, right? Right, right. Is that right? And Janice is in Texas. They both are sex addiction specialists, partner specialists. You can read their bios in um, some of our written material with the podcast because the list goes on and on of all that these two have accomplished. But the main thing you need to know is they are experts. They love people. They love what they do. And they are passionate about helping people understand the power of a therapeutic disclosure in the process of recovery. So Dan and Janice, welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. Welcome, thank you. Thank you for having us. So good to be here. Awesome. Well, I don't care which of you guys starts and if you, I, I'm sure you have enough of a friendship that you can tag team with each other with all the books you've written. <laughs> we'll <But> be polite. <laughs> I love it, I love it. Please uh, explain, especially for our listeners who maybe don't know what a full therapeutic disclosure is, what is a full therapeutic disclosure? Janice, you want to do it? No, I was going to ask you to start and then I'll, <laughs> I'll interrupt you. Oh, that sounds even better. Okay, okay. why not? Um, basically, there's a number of ways to do this, but a full disclosure is essentially the unveiling of truth in a kind of contained, controlled environment. Yeah. So it's typically facilitated by a professional um, but, and it's, it's, there's prep work ahead of time oftentimes, but it's essentially a process of unveiling the, the, the secrets that happen after sexual addiction, sexual betrayal, um, sharing that with a loved one. Mm-hmm. Anything you'd add, Janice? Um, yeah, I think we, we, um, refer to the actual exchange as a rite of truth because it's the restoration of, a a, a missing piece, um, in the, the actual absolute foundation of a relationship, which is truth. Um, and it's a, a, it's a sacred ceremony. It's not the thing that happens like in the middle of the night or in the living room or in the bathroom or, um, when questions come up and answers only get, you know, answered if the right questions occur, Mm -hmm. um, it's a real sharing. Um, and it's, it's a real transition, um, towards, um, beginning to rebuild. Oh, so powerful. I've been able to uh, be a part of many, many therapeutic disclosures, and it really is a sacred space. Janice, something you said about it's not what happens in the middle of the night. It's not what happens when you ask the right question. It That makes my heart skip a beat because I think of all the couples that I've heard of where one party has had some kind of a sexual addiction or unwanted sexual behavior and inevitably there are lies and secrets involved with that. And there's what we call the dribble out or trickle out disclosure that happens, which is what you were kind of describing. Can you explain why that is so damaging? And you already did kind of describe how different that is from the full therapeutic disclosure. But if you want to elaborate on that at all. Well, because and for the person seeking the truth for the partner, um, it usually occurs with her effort, with uh, her question. 
Um, and, and often with having to ask that question um, in 15 different versions before it finally trickles out. Uh, it's a little bit more in lines of um, like a, a criminal procedure where you, you know you have to break somebody down. And, and usually only a tiny kernel of truth comes out. Quite often what the, the secret keeper thinks is already known. And then the, then the partner does all this work is usually with it and now you know everything. And then there's all this work. Okay, now that I know it, now I can start my healing process. Um, and then a week later, two weeks later, three months later, the scab is completely ripped off when, and you go through the process again. And each time the, the scar tissue builds, each time they, and now you know everything, um, is less and less trusted. Uh, each time that there's longer and longer additional healing time, you know, that's, that's, that's added to both the partner's healing, the addict's healing and um, the coupleship. And even if you success, if a partner can successively get all the little pieces of truth over time, it's with a great deal of effort. Um, and the way that the truth is gotten does not restore trust. Um, and so the, 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 the formal therapeutic full disclosure is, is also, it's the way it's done, um, you know, respects the sacredness of it and is done in a way that repairs both that there wasn't truth and it repairs to some degree the way I'm giving it to you. Mm. I love it. And there's so many more questions I have rolling around in my head because I think this is so important. But Dan, could you elaborate on how a, a therapeutic disclosure is different from confession? Which for our listeners who are from a conservative Christian background, we think of confession as a really important part of our healing as believers, right? But how is this, how is a full therapeutic disclosure different? Well, and that's, that's, so this is the flip side, right? So if on one side we have these drip, dribbled out, dribbled out, you know, staggered disclosures, mm -hmm. on the other hand, sometimes I'll, I'll hear, um, you know, well-meaning, I think this is well-meaning from, from folks that they may go to a retreat or conference or, you know, they really get some kind of inspiration um, through other uh, friends or accountability groups or church groups even um, to, they, they, they kind of share their story. They feel a lot of freedom from sharing their story with other men. Um, and then they feel like, well, now I, I have this uh, responsibility or I feel like this newfound freedom. I want to share this kind of information with my, my wife when I come home from this retreat or something. Um, in good intention, I think they realize the freedom of that and how helpful it can be. But I find sometimes people will will do a, a confession where it's kind of a litany, just just kind of instead of a prepared process where both can feel kind of contained and supported, it's kind of now dumping all the, the the disclosing parties stuff onto the partner. So to me, if I think about it, if I'm confessing before God, the confession's really for me, right? It's not because God doesn't need it, like God's bigger enough, bigger than me, obviously. So if I'm confessing, it's really for my my own healing so that God can kind of do that work within me. What a disclosure is, is it's now, it's not just healing for the disclosing party. It's actually healing for the partner and for the coupleship. So that to me is the big difference between disclosure mm. and a confession where the confession is really about me um, and, you know, me feeling better while I dump all this stuff onto my partner. I, she feels ambushed. And then all of a sudden, you know, kind of 
this onslaught of information, which may be helpful information for her to know, but she just is completely traumatized and uh, caught off guard by it. And in uh, contrast, when you're doing, I, I have told people that I have encouraged to, to go through a, a, a disclosure process. I've said, yes, it sounds really painful to do this, but it's like scheduling surgery with your skilled surgeon mm -hmm. instead of doing a back alley illegal operation with yeah. a dirty scalpel. I mean, that right. really, that's the visual for me. And, and that's, I love that. That's, I use that analogy all the time. I think it's perfect because on the one hand, you, you want to make sure, let's say it's a cancerous tumor. You want to make sure yeah. you get the whole thing out. So you don't start to heal up and then you realize, oh, no, we still got to get more of it. But also you don't want to take more than you need. So I think that's yeah. part of what this process is and why the skill is so involved. And I love uh, the surgery analogy, I think is a perfect one. Yes. yes. Go ahead, Janice. I can tell yes, you have something. It's actually kind of an analogy that we use in, in the kind of the workbooks we created. We also use the, the analogy of, of like a natural disaster, an earthquake. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, an earthquake has can be measured in terms of its intensity. And it can be measured in terms of its impact. So you can live somebody in, for example, San Francisco, in an area where the infrastructure is really prepared for that, a fairly large earthquake might have minimal damage. If I'm in a, if I'm in a, um, if you're, you're in my, in my home state of Kentucky, and that happens, it's going to, even a relatively minor earthquake is going to topple everything because we're not typically prepared. Now, what you can control to some degree um, in a, in a, you know, a, a formal therapeutic full disclosure is the impact. And you, you control the impact that by helping to prepare people to do that yeah. in, a, um, in the healthiest way possible. And, and yeah, and so, um, you know, Dan knows that I kind of like, I like research, I like surveys. Um, and, and, and part of the, um, the APSETS, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists kind of survey about like disclosures. What we know is that the typically on a 10 point scale, the initial discovery where you kind of really, even if it takes a few, it's like where you finally get it. Oh my God, this is what's going on for the partner and, and uh, level of emotional pain is typically about 9.64. Um, which is higher actually than the highest recorded earthquake in history. Uh, yeah, that's not, that's, that's not surprising. <laughs> and what we know about disclosures, and this includes ones that are sort of average in ones that aren't well done versus ones that are, but on average, it's a 7.7, .7, which is a, that's a major, that's still a major earthquake. It is. But it begins the process of allowing some of the damage of the discovery and some of the, the damage that happens, um, the power struggles around truth that can happen, um, um, you know, between couples before the discover, uh, excuse me, disclosure, it allows that to begin to repair. Mm. What do you guys think are some of the most common objections, especially from maybe Christians or, or spiritual leaders or counselors who are not trained specifically in this issue of sex addiction and betrayal trauma? What are the most common objections to doing a therapeutic disclosure? So Dan, do you want to like um, me take partner and you take? Sure. Yeah. Um, huh, not much. I need truth. <laughs> okay. When's, I need truth. When's the disclosure? 
It yeah. might be that I'm really afraid in, in our, Dan's and I personal research, some of it about I'm afraid of what's unknown. Yeah. That it might be more than I can handle. Uh, for some women, it's, and, and uh, our research and our research, the partners were almost exclusively women. But for some of them, it's, I'm afraid of like actually having to hear all the things I've already heard. And then it's just going to be too much if I hear it all together. But the biggest one is I'm afraid he'll still lie. Okay. I do want to hear Dan's objections too, but how do we handle the whole, well, is it, can't he just lie again on a, a therapeutic disclosure? I mean, do you guys include polygraph in part of your encouragement of the process? Uh, yeah, we, I don't require it, but yes, I'm, yeah, I, I encourage I'm, it. I'm openly a polygraph girl for lots of reasons. How about you, Dan? Yeah, Are you a polygraph I guy? <laughs> I will say I'm a polygraph guy. Um, I give the choice up to every couple that goes through this. Mm -hmm. um, it's not really my place because you can look online and people come up with their own, you know, a, a lot of reading that they'll they'll do on polygraphs. And I understand it's a controversial topic in our field. Um, I've seen over the years, though, I've seen them very valuable for both parties, actually, yeah. not just for the partner, but I've seen it as a way of... Um, Another, another way that the person who's doing the disclosing um, really, when they know the polygraph is there, they really do a deep dive into this, this yeah. preparation. They really want to make sure they turn over every stone. They don't give it, you know, they give their full effort where sometimes they may do a, you know, quote, good enough job, which may not be, you know, as detailed or specific, but they, they really get some motivation when they know there's a polygraph. And I find it also, there's sometimes, let's say it's early on, we could talk for hours about polygraph, by the way, but, um, and it always comes up, but uh, there, there's also the, the situation that may happen sometimes where someone who's earlier on in their recovery or healing process, um, they, they may be kind of in a fog still um, as they're coming out of their, their behaviors. They may not remember everything perfectly or, or, you know, not like anyone remembers perfectly, but they may, may have some memory gaps um, compartmentalized information. So yes. if we're doing a disclosure early on, which is a whole other question, when do we do these things, right? Yes, that we can is save a question. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> which we'll start with this one first. Yeah. But, yeah. but let's say we're doing it early on. There's a chance that there's, there's some information that, that he may, and I'm saying he, because that's oftentimes what's the case. The person doing the disclosing, um, could be of any gender, obviously, but sure. we often see men, um, where the, 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 the he's doing, the, the prep work. And maybe he, after doing the disclosure, he realizes, man, I forgot this thing. There's something that happened. And I completely, as I'm in further recovery, my kind of memory, my integrity is fully more online. I, there's more things I remember. Now what happens when he comes, does he just, now does he keep that secret from his partner and say, oh shoot, there was this thing that I forgot to say. If I share it, then what happens? So I found if, if we, if the person does the polygraph, there's, it's more likely that the partner believes after the fact that this was recovered truth rather than withheld truth. Yes. Um, you know what I mean? There's a, and there's Absolutely. a big difference. So that is a big benefit I've seen of a polygraph plus, plus just the willingness to do it says, you know what, I, Absolutely. your safety is so important to me, wife, yes. spouse, partner, that whatever you need to heal, I'm going to do. I might feel I've uncomfortable. Got I'm hide. scared. I've got nothing to yeah. hide. I've got nothing to fear. This thing may be scary in and of itself. And that's okay. It's normal to be afraid of the polygraph. Like I get it, but we're doing we're doing fidelity polygraphs, not forensic polygraphs. Everybody in here, big, big difference. We all, you know, 
it gives an opportunity for the person to tell the full honest truth, not try and catch them in a lie. And there's a big difference. We're, we're trying, everyone wants this thing to succeed. Um, you know, and so anyway, that's, that's, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a polygraph guy. I'll, that's the short of it. And you know what? I am a polygraph girl too. So we're, we're going three for three here because <laughs> I also think it's a very powerful, I've seen addicts who are like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I have this as a, it's kind of yeah. like a backup for if I ever have that little voice in my head that says just this once, like, what's the big deal? Right. She'll never know. No, she will. Because a lot of couples will do a maintenance annual follow-up polygraph, not a full disclosure, but a, just a, and, that, and so it, for some guys, it's like the most legit form of accountability. And that's, I, I think it's a think good way of looking. Sorry, go ahead, Janice. I'm going to say, I don't think it's just some guys. I mean, the, the research that Dan and I did, um, it's, it's not a big enough dis difference that it's statistically significant from a research standpoint, but when we rate who gets the biggest gains from a polygraph, it's not the partner. It's the addict. And I think Which that's is so interesting because I know for when partners find out that like, that's a legit thing, like a polygraph is an option at first, they're like, wait, what? This is a thing because it's not widely known in the world, right? That you can actually have this as a part of your therapeutic process. It is so relieving. I can finally take off my detective hat and leave this in the hands of the professionals. So can I say ahead, one Dan. thing on that? And Janice is, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, Janice, but I love the way you talk about the, the burden. So there's there's a burden of, of truth yeah. that's that's here. I think Janice does a really good job of explaining that, you know, for polygraph or not. And I, would you mind sharing that? I think you uh, explained well, it really well. I assume you're talking about who's going to who's gonna carry the greater consequences. Right. Um, you know, because um, everybody's worried about a false positive, some, a polygraph that might actually, and there's, and, and I think the stats are about 87%. There's an 87% accuracy rate. So there is, there's a legitimate concern about I could take this, tell the truth and not pass. And that's truth. And, and, uh, and so we have to kind of be sensitive to that. Can I ask you a question though? If it's a good polygrapher, can't they keep like pressing in until they get there or re-polygraph at an no, earlier I date? Those are meta, that's a meta study. So I think it's just easier okay. to just accept that there's that that's that's life. You know what? That's an x-ray. That's an MRI. It doesn't, it's not hundred percent gonna catch things. And that's a reality. And so I don't want to invalidate that that's a, a legitimate concern for somebody stepping up to take a polygraph. But what people forget is, well, who holds the consequences if he doesn't? Now, the partner, you know, is sitting there having to try to sometimes become a human lie detector. Um, and you can't be a human lie detector. There's always this doubt that's there, uh, particularly after, after you know, um, the types of things that go on uh, in the addiction, in the recovery. My God, the recovery is, is sometimes harder you know, than before, the gaslighting, like partners get really kind of doubtful or disconnected from their own intuition. Um, so with polygraphs are actually helpful for more than just what the obvious is really helpful for a partner beginning to, to connect with their own intuition and mm. have, getting to say, I don't have to be a human lie detector anymore. Because mm. that's crazy making, that strips us of our like soul. And so I think it's really important that we also acknowledge, uh, I get the concerns that, that many professionals, many of our couples maybe have about, you know, the, the possible negative implications of a polygraph, 
if you choose not to do something, you're leaving in that entire burden of uncertainty on the partner's back. Can I make my pitch to men here real quick? Please. Is that okay? Absolutely. So, yes. For those listening, I mean, I, we hear all kinds of stuff and I, I get it. It's always an individual decision around something like polygraph. We're talking about that right now. Um, or disclosure for that matter. I mean, it's always going to be your choice. Sometimes I, I talk to men and they feel backed into a corner, like they don't have a choice. It's either that or it's an ultimatum. Either you do this or I'm done. I just, what I would really encourage you, this, all this is about safety. It's reestablishing a foundation of honesty and truth in the relationship. It's all about really helping your partner feel safe and then ultimately starting to build trust back in the relationship. So, you know, if, if the polygraph is one thing that your partner is asking for as a way for her to start feeling more, more safety, um, for you to, to do whatever it takes to, to show that you're, you're willing to help her heal. To me, it's a, it's a small ask. I mean, and, and, you know, I hear some people saying like, man, if we're at the point in our relationship where you need a polygraph and, you know, we're there, then maybe this, you know, is it, is it worth it? I can't believe we're there. They feel controlled or they feel, you know, whatever backed into a corner. So that the reality is your partner, you know, if you're like most couples, um, your partner got blindsided uh, through discovery, you know, and she didn't know what was coming. And she's trying to figure out what the, 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 the base, what the bottom of this is. She's kind of free falling, trying to find a foundation of truth and where the bottom lands. So all this is a really a way of reestablishing a new foundation in the relationship. And so my, my strong uh, recommendation is to really take that into consideration. It can be, you know, in our own fear of doing something that's scary or challenging ourselves, you know, it's sometimes we want to discount all this and find reasons not to do it. And we hear that all the time, but um, I just, I, I, I thought it was all extreme when I first started this work, I'll say that, you know, doing a disclosure with a polygraph, I mean, that sounds like a lot pretty extreme. And yet, and I, and I never set out to write a book or, you know, work on all these resources with, with anybody on disclosure. And yet I've seen the value so much over the years for this process that I really, I'm so grateful that, that Janice and I could work on this to, to, um, you know, provide a, a safe way to go through the, the, the journey. So that's my, my quick pitch for the men. I love it. I love it. And for our listeners, we will have links to the books that Janice and Dan have written. Um, and there are books, there are multiple books and workbooks, both for the professionals, for the partner and for the addict, correct? Correct. Yeah. Awesome. So what are some of your guys's suggestions for best practices? Let's say we're, we have therapists listening to this or maybe a pastor's listening and thinking, I'm not sure if I want to even bring this up to this couple that's sitting in my office telling me they have this issue. What are some of the things that you recommend um, are best practices for if a couple's going through betrayal, trauma, and they don't know where to go or what to do, why would you recommend that they seek a disclosure and how do they go about getting one? How do they find somebody that's able to do it? And then the subsequent question is, what are the best practices within a disclosure for the therapists that are listening to us who do conduct disclosures? Okay. That was like a four-part question. Yeah, is that, is that, that too was. much? <laughs> way to start? Yeah, do it, go, go for it. Okay, I'll try, I'll try to start. Um, Wait. So first of all, before best practices, looking at so when I when I think disclosures on the table, um, when I'll start bringing it up. First of all, partners often will find out about the, the process and bring it up to me. So sure. they may have already researched it. They may already be like, so what's a disclosure and how do we do this? You know. So 
if if that's it's already coming up, then clearly I'm going to talk about it. Um, if if a couple is coming in and the partner is asking so many questions, these questions are firing at all hours of the night. Um, you know, and she just needs to, she keeps trying to understand what's going on, what the, the, the bottom of all it is, you know, trying to get more, more information. That's when I'm going to try and we're going to try and triage this a bit more so that we can have a contained way of getting those questions answered rather than at 3 a.m. when nobody's at their best. So that's the kind of, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, move towards a, a disclosure process. Those are a couple of things that are obviously, you know, yeah. big indications that we're on. Going for a disclosure. Yeah, and it sounds like Dan, you answered from the, the therapist or the professional perspective. And to that, I would add, um, you know, ideally we would like to have somebody who's got some some sobriety behind them. Um, How much? A, How much? Ideally, <laughs> the minimum would be like three months, just because. Yep. But plus, but, but plus because yeah, I'm getting there. I know where you're going, okay. Dan. All right. Plus, <laughs> just because of memory things. Like, yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah. Okay. But, um, you know, somebody who also, I also work with, with addicts and guide addicts and I'm, I'm just, and, um, I've seen this as the addicts guide. I've seen it as, as a couple partners guide. I've seen it as a couple's guide. There's sometimes there's a, a surprising little phenomenon of you get close to six, three months. And then all of a sudden there's a relapse. And there are times when it becomes really apparent if we wait for that, this partner is going to be a very, very, very old woman before truth is ever restored. And so sometimes I've, I've actually gone, you know, recommended and participated in disclosures when that's not been the case. And I've been really surprised that quite often the disclosure prompts the final, the finally getting sober. And it's, yeah. like, I don't think real, real healing begins until truth is restored. Mm. Um, I've also seen addicts who thought they had told everything because they sort of did it spontaneously, but you've probably seen this, Dan, you see the look on the eye as you're working with somebody in the document. And it's like, oh, you just remembered something, didn't you? Mm -hmm. You can see it beginning compartments start to open up. But if I'm stepping into the shoes as a partner, um, looking for this process, I, I want to I, uh, I work with somebody who knows both sex addiction and partner betrayal trauma. Uh, Absolutely. So how do our listeners find somebody if they want? Well, obviously you two do these, <laughs> right? You do disclosures and we'll have contact information, but in general, how, I mean, I, I use psychology today a lot of times to find somebody who does EMDR. I don't think you can use I, any I tool wouldn't. to find somebody who, do, who does disclosure. No. And we had, sorry, sorry, cut you off, Kristen. No, you're good. Oh, yeah, so please. We, we had some questions to ask, ask your professional. And in fact, that was a big choice that, that we, we talked about when writing these books is, is this just for therapists or could clergy use these or could, could coaches use these? In our opinion, you know, there's some things that, that, you know, a therapist would, would be more equipped to deal with, but we think that these things could be professionally guided by, um, you know, even a, a pastoral counselor or by a coach. Yeah. We really do think it can yeah. be done as long as they're done with, within a certain framework and done safely. Um, so there's, there's some trainings that, that you can do, um, you know, to, to get this. So, so Dan, support. I'll remind, I'll remind you too, that in the appendix of volume one um, for partners, 
um, we put resources here, organizations that have, and we, with a little grid of what types of uh, training they have, um, including what type of types of disclosure, like trainings that they have. Um, I, I do think for partners, it's maybe a little bit more important right up front in the early stages of kind of seeking a therapist or a coach or, or you know, support. Uh, for sure. To know a little bit because there's some things, some choice points around the disclosure process that can be really important for partners. And if you don't find out until like a year in the, the therapists or the coach that you've been working with, that they don't do any of those things that's a real dilemma. You know, do I start over or do I compromise on, you know, on something that was really, really important to me regarding truth? Yeah. Mm. That's really good. Yeah. And I know there's a couple of the coaches that run our groups that, um, that do full therapeutic disclosure with people like say Julie St. Ange, you guys probably know her. Um, so you guys contact us at, at living-truth.org and we're more than happy to get you in touch with Dan and Janice and other people who can do these therapeutic disclosures. You definitely want to see a specialized yeah. individual who has training in this area rather than going to a back alley person who is doing this without training because it can be very traumatic. But we have found in our experience that couples that do this, that are really in it, to want to rebuild a marriage built on a, a foundation of safety, that it can be a, yes, it is a deeply distressing and often draining day, but it can be that, that uh, launch pad mm-hmm. for a whole new beginning, yeah. right? So what are some of the benefits that you guys see for couples afterwards? Dan, you want to go or you want me to go first? Uh, why don't you start? Well, I, I think the the benefit, the biggest benefit for the couple is the same is the same as the biggest benefit for the partner, and for you know the 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 disclosing addict, and that's truth. That's even footing. We know what's true, and now we can grieve. We know what's true, what the truth is, and now we can assess where our recoveries. Um, and, and the, even if there's a, I how to say this, not everybody tells the truth in the disclosure, which can be very, very painful. But the thing I, I kind of talk to partners about is there's always truth in a disclosure. Sometimes it's the facts that are written on a page. Sometimes it's the behavior. And if in a disclosure where, you know, um, say a, a polygraph's not passed, the truth is that's where he's at in his recovery. Yeah. Um, and now if I'm a partner, I can be- begin my own healing. And it's only through my own healing that our relationship has the capacity, you know, to, to repair. Um, part of the imagery that we use in the partner's book, like uh, volume two is the, the book for preparing for disclosure. The imagery at the end uh, is like a phoenix rising. And because things really do have to burn sometimes. Structures of lies and deceit have to burn before new growth can happen. I think for me, I would just, I think you said so much, Janice. I I would just add that um, 
kind of talking about the disaster metaphor, if, if I'm rebuilding a house, um, well, let me back up. So if, if I'm in recovery, this is one of the risks, right? For that, that the, we didn't talk about as much, why, why not to do a disclosure or what? Yeah, what please kind of do things. elaborate on that for sure. Um, one big thing is couples may not make it. I mean, we have to put that out there. It may be too much. Um, that's a possibility or the fear that, you know, a lot of, a lot of people that I talk to the, the disclosing person, the addict will say, you know, if, if my partner knows X, Y, or Z, there's no way that they could stay with me. They just couldn't. And that's a big risk that they have to walk into that, you know, which, which is based on their own negative core beliefs of I'm unlovable. I'm unworthy. I'm defective. I'm a fraud, you know, all those things that under, are underneath this. And, and because I have those core beliefs, those negative core beliefs, I'm hiding the stuff that I feel ashamed about. And so I, I don't want people to know those things about me because if they really did know me on all those things, there's no way they would, they would love me and stay with me. So it confronts the negative core beliefs that addicts have about themselves and, and, you know, have to trust that their partner is going to stay with them. And if I'm um, a partner, what I find, I think you and, and I, Dan, have talked about this a lot. It's, um, God, X, Y, and Z are really hard to take, and it's going to take me a while to re recover from that. But because the lies are gone, yes, because there's truth, now I have the capacity to. It's almost always the lies that ends the relationship. As ugly as yep. the truth is, it's the starting point. Yep, because mm -hmm. what it's vulnerability. It's a it's a step of real intimacy finally. Um, so you know, instead of rebuilding, so going back to for the coupleship, instead of rebuilding a house, and you're just building a facade, you're building one wall that everybody sees, but there's really nothing behind it. Because yeah. that's what the addiction is, right? I show a certain side of myself Ooh. to you to the world to my community, I'm the pillar of the community, I'm, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm a leader, I'm a, um, but underneath it, I feel defective and bad, bad and unworthy and unlovable. And you know, a lot of shame. Um, instead of rebuilding this facade, we're actually rebuilding a house that's got, you know, it's actually furnished. It's, it's the real, it's authentic. And there's this sense of, of um, this authenticity and relief that happens with that. I don't have any more secrets. And now I can actually be truly vulnerable and I might feel that shame initially, but ultimately we can be naked and unashamed, you know, with our, with our truth in the relationship. And the fact that most partners, I mean, yes, it's tough at first, for sure. It's traumatic doing a disclosure, but most partners, leave because of lies and dishonesty and deception and gaslighting and emotional abuse. They don't leave because of the truth that's shared. Like what Jana said, I completely agree. Mm -hmm. So reality, these core beliefs aren't, aren't very, aren't true because partners generally do stay yeah. after this as hard as it is because you took the risk to be fully honest and finally give her that gift of, of truth and, and transparency. So that's what I've seen. And that, that's a, that's a relationship that new coupleship is built on a, a, a real intimacy, not just this kind of facade of intimacy. Yeah. And so, Dan, you were. Oh, I just said, Janice. I'll add one point, and it's 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 um, something I saw very very early on uh, in my kind of disclosure career that 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 stays with me, and it has had to do with. Um, some research that um, that AppSets did around the disclosure process. And so I, I apologize, I'm kind of the, again, I'm kind of the researcher gal. Um, and and it, there's an, you really, as a researcher, you really pay attention to anomalies in research. And a, a big one is when people don't have to answer something, they are not going to answer it. So when all of a sudden in the middle of a, a research project where it says, hey, if you've never had a disclosure, 
you can skip the next 20 questions. Um, and we had an anomaly where like literally hundreds of women who had never had a disclosure were doing write-ins in that section, in that section of the, the survey. And the one that, that just stays with me is 40 years and still waiting. And I feel such sadness every time I remember that because that's not only a partner who's not really living the life that she deserves, that's a relationship that can never be what it perhaps has capacity to be. So there's a, there's a, there's a risk in doing and there are gains in doing. I'm just gonna let, remind people there's a risk in not doing. Um, Huge, huge risk. So what are some of the things that need to happen within the context of a disclosure? I mean, I know there's a lot, a lot of people have different processes of how much, how much detail do you share? Do you do it in a spreadsheet form or in a um, narrative form? I'd love to hear just some of the, once you're in the room and it's D-Day, it's disclosure day, what, ha what do you recommend? Well, D-Day starts well long before, before the, the day of truth at least for partners. Um, well, we call the we say there's two D days, right? There's the discovery days and there's little D days, disclosure days where he just tells you stuff. And then yes. this is your big D day, your disclosure day, right? Well, I'm going to add a different D and I'm just making it up, which is yeah. dig, dig deep day. <laughs> and it's I love it. what we know from uh, what we know about trauma is that there are missing pieces in, on almost all trauma. Um, and um, usually it's choice. Um, it's enough time to prepare. It's support. It's, uh, I might be super prepared for the tsunami that's coming, but the moment it's about to kind of go over my head, um, you know, I can't stop that moment. Uh, and so the preparation for partners is all about choice. And so if Dan and I are working together, he's not working blindly with the disclosure, um, you know, in addition to getting the, the actual timeline and history of what's, what's happened, he's got input from my partner. We have a, a call it a very sort of thorough disclosure survey needs assessment. I kind of call it a menu um, where partners, uh, you sometimes have no idea what their choices actually are around information. So it's a pretty detailed kind of uh, schematic. I can't tell you how helpful that is because, because if I'm preparing someone to actually share, so let me just even back up. We're, we often advocate for a written disclosure, but there's different ways this could go. You, you could do it verbally. Why we advocate for a written document is uh, there's no, <laughs> it's more structured. There's no room for ad-libbing or for going off scripts. You know, you wanna have as complete of a document as possible. That's more polygraph friendly. Uh, we typically like to do kind of the, the dis disclosing parties history. So whatever that format is, narrative timeline. Um, and then I like to add, you know, after that, the, the partner answers to the partner's direct questions mm -hmm. that they may have, which you can add to after disclosure, that's fine. But um, so there's those two main segments that we, we, we put on the document. 
you may be surprised. So how does this thing, what's the best way to do it? The reality is, I don't know. There, it's it's so individualized for a couple. Every couple's different, what they might need. You know, I, uh, one, one partner may say, you know what? I need to know chronologically, you know, every single year, I don't want to know categories. Okay. Or I, they, they prefer instead of kind of bullet points, timeline, or, you know, a, a timeline that way, they, they want some more narrative. Okay. I'm really going to defer a lot to what the partner needs. Um, and, and just because we wrote resources, the reason, it, if, if you see these things, don't, don't be alarmed. I know they're big, but why they, they got so big was because we realized we don't have the one way to do it. What we wanted to do, because Janice and I do disclosures differently, actually. But what we wanted to do was say, here's the different choice points along the way, and here's how you can navigate them. So what do we do with that disclosure document before, during, and after the disclosure is one thing in there that that you don't want to have that, you don't want to figure out that conversation afterwards. You want to have it ahead of time. So there's a lot of different ways this can go down and every single couple is different. And that's why we, we try to prepare every couple individualized uh, in a different way. So what do you do when a cup, when a partner comes and says, I want nitty gritty details, because mm -hmm. this does happen sometimes and I understand why, but um, what do you, what do you do with that? Well, if I'm working with that partner, um, I'm going to, I'm going to want to know why yeah. I'm going to want to vet that question. So we have a process that I kind of put partners through because quite often, if I, if I'm a partner and want to know the nitty gritty details, sometimes there's usually a reason for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and, and quite often the, the addict or the addict's guide is not going to understand that quite often without asking, I don't understand it. When I do, sometimes it's like, oh, I totally get it. Why well, you need to know that piece now. Or, oh, this is really about like, uh, you know, checking on lies since, since recovery. You know, was there a recovery con? And, when, and once you know that that's what it's about, it's like, oh, you know what? You could just ask him if you lied about that. Um, there are ways to sometimes get the same information without having to get the details. Sometimes the details themselves are the most important point. And if I'm working with a partner and I know the reason she's got to ask about that restaurant is because every time she's been there for the last two years, some, you know, something starts twisting in her stomach and really for her finding out if he took, if he took an affair partner there, um, allows her to, to be relieved. Like, oh my God, it wasn't yeah. crazy. Oh yes. my, my intuition, how wonderful my intuition is. That's, that's a really important detail. And so if I'm working with a partner, we're going to understand what it's really about. Have you, are you phrasing the question that actually gets to what you want? And what's your coping plan? What's your coping plan if you get the worst possible answer? Right. Um, and then, um, and guess what? The answer you just gave about the worst possible answer is probably not the worst possible answer. The worst possible answer is probably, I don't know. How are you going to handle it if you because if you get that? So it's a very thorough, like coping plan. And what we know about people developing coping plans is that um, if you need them, um, you know, a 7.7 .7 magnitude disclosure earthquake, uh, you can handle it a whole lot better. And that sometimes the very process of creating a coping plan negates that you, you end up not needing it because you've done some work along the way that changes the very situation you're going into. Mm. 
can I just say too, that's, that's one reason I like to advocate if possible. And I know everybody has different circumstances in a perfect world. I'd love to have two support people for a couple. So one person preparing each party in a relationship. That's why, you know, Janice, all the things she'd be working with a partner on really helped me because if, if the partner wants to know nitty gritty details and, and I don't know why I may, you know, I have other questions or I may have, I might guide my, my person differently. So, so if I know this is why I'm like, okay, that's what we're doing. If there's a reason mm -hmm. for it, or if there's another question, Janice will help that person come to, to what the real question is. And that's what I can help prepare, um, you know, the addict to do the disclosing about. And that's maybe an area that Dan and have a, Dan and I have a little bit of a difference on because um, I was kind of the first person to do this in my my local area um, and sort of had to develop resources in absence of that second person. And I do uh, couples intensives, and so sometimes I do this um, and navigate as a as the couples therapist. And I would say about seven out of ten times um, that second person isn't absolutely necessary. Um, in fact, it, it, you know, sometimes the frustration of two very busy professionals trying to coordinate time um, become maddening. Um, but the, the other three times, the other three out of those 10 times, I'm really regretting it that I don't have another person here, you know, when, when bombs are going off kind of in both places. Um, so I think it, it really depends on the, the circumstances. And a little bit, a little bit ago, when you first brought up the the bullet point versus narrative, I, I smiled a bit because that's actually an area where um, Dan and I differed. You know, as the person who did more more work with the partner, I'm thinking about the way it looks and the way it sounds and um, that. Um, and so there was a little bit of a, a running debate that Dan and I had early on until I tried it with the bullet points. And darn it, they aren't faster. It speeds up the process. So my stance with that with partners is usually now you, we can do this narrative, but you know, it'll probably slow it down. What's right. important to you. And, and mm -hmm. I sometimes find depending on the, the level of manipulation in a relationship, yeah. the more words that get used, there's more chances of subtle rationalizations, justifications, minimizations, denial, you know, blame shifting. And so, yeah. And I'm, but again, of course if you're scanning for that. You're of reading course, the yes. and you're scanning for yes, it and you're but I'm also not their part. I'm trying to read it as if I were the, the partner, what I might hear yeah. from this, but I'm not them and I don't know what the little triggers might be, or you know, I'm I'm trying to put my do my best effort. So yeah, I mean I there's not one way this has to go. Yeah. I, I think that's that's one thing that that we wanted to be clear. I yeah. think the main thing is to keep it safe uh for for the coupleship. And I, I firmly believe this is I also agree it's a sacred experience. I mean it's beautiful what can happen. It's it's difficult, yes, but it's beautiful for for couples to sit there together in this, this healing space where the partner's hearing hearing this information and the, and the um addict is sharing it. It's it's really it can be really beautiful. Um yeah. Yeah I, but I would say sacred is not necessarily the same as Hallmark movie. <laughs> Uh, oh gosh, um, it's absolutely no Hallmark movie. Well, that's you know, for sure. I think that's also why it's important to have somebody with training and experience. Yeah. Is uh, I could, yeah, I do couples intensive. I could navigate something that looked fantastic, 
that sounded like this a scene that you might see in a movie with Kristen. Here's the truth. And I could go into like how broken I am. Um, I can start kind of talking about how shame, how much shame I was in. But I could like probably do a pretty good job of creating a real emotional kind of experience. But what what happens sometimes in those really wonderful emotional experiences is the actual truth gets kind of pushed to the side. And, and maybe if I'm a partner, three weeks later, I realize, wait a second, I, I, re I responded more to his feelings mm -hmm. than I did my own. And, and so um, I just want to say- And her empathy gets kind of exploited. If, yeah. it, if it's all about an emotional narrative and if it, I often have told couples, it's like, you're not going to hear, or the partner, you're not going to hear, I'm sorry, I did this. I did this. I'm sorry for that. It's not an apology. It's the truth. It's just the truth getting out there. And it, yeah. in a bullet form, it met my husband, he would prepare guys. He would have them prepare a spreadsheet initially to categorize behaviors and years. Yeah. Um, and then more like share it in a bullet form and it just is so much less um about any kind of exploiting of her empathy for how he feels about what he did and it's more about her being able to hear the truth yeah. and the truth sets us free does it not it does yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the truth hurts so you have to prepare to hear it it does and that's yes. that's the second kind of leg of the work for partners is preparing themselves um to be able to hear the truth and, um, I, you know, if I, um, if, if I'm in a place where there are hurricanes and there's one coming at me, I'm going to, uh, if, you know, if I got three days, I'm going to be boarding things up. I'm going to be getting supplies. I'm going to take a lot of effort in preparing so I could sustain it as best possible in a disclosure what the partner prepares is for herself, you know, and, and there's a lot of, uh, sort of emotional regulation kind of uh, self-regulation kind of work that you can do in preparing that. And the beauty of that is when you prepare yourself, once the disclosure is over, you still have yourself at a stronger, you know, um, more sustainable level. Well, thank you guys so much for sharing your wisdom, your expertise. I know this is gonna benefit our listeners so much. And I am just so grateful that you guys took time out of your busy schedules to spend this time with me. I love Gavin with you. So grateful to be here. Thanks so much for what you do, Kristen. Thanks guys. 